0: Well, good morning. So thankful this morning that we get to gather where it is warm and dry because it is cold out there today, isn't it? Man, thank you, Lord, for this building. Well, if it's your first time joining us, as Jason mentioned, we're we're doing a study through the entire book of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're currently in chapter 5. We're going to take out a little more of that chapter today. We won't quite get through the whole thing. There's just too much in the section we've got this morning, but we're calling this series, Through the Book of Luke, Good News for Everyone, and the reason we're using that kind of title for this series is because that's really the Dr. Luke who wrote this book, that's his heart in displaying Jesus as the Savior of all men. He's not specifically trying to point this for the Jewish people or the Gentiles, but everyone and anyone who would come to the Lord Jesus and be saved, and we see him continuing to make a point to mention these people that were outcasts of society. We've seen a leper, we've seen a a lame man who couldn't get to Jesus, whose friends have to carry him. Today we'll see another man very much cast out of society and unwelcomed that will be called to Jesus and will follow him and will be saved. Um, We're beginning in verse 27 this morning, and we're going to go to verse 32. I'll read the text for us, and we'll open in prayer. It says, After these things, he, speaking of Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Let's pray this morning as we begin. God, as we come before your word, we find hope because it truly is good news for everyone. Lord, as we look at our text this morning and see the story of Levi, a man you called to follow you, God, for many of us it's an all-too-familiar story of the way you called us as well. God, we are thankful this morning as we look at your word that you're a God who sees. And not just what other people see, you're a God who sees into our hearts and our thoughts. You're a God that sees what takes place behind closed doors. And you're a God who sees and who acts on behalf of your people. We thank you, Lord, that for as great and majestic and powerful as you are, that you are also intimate and personal and in the smallest details of our life. God, I pray this morning that you would show us truth through your word, that it would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. That we would hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. And that our text this morning would put you on display. For your glory and your honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you want to write down a title for today's message, you can write this down. Back Row Disciples back row disciples. Now, in my experience in youth ministry, and even in in teaching at times in schools, there's typically three types of people. You've got your front row people, clearly we don't have any at our church. You've got your middle of the pack people, and you've got your back row people, (laughs) Yeah, they're usually the ones that celebrate that. Yeah. Well, I was a back row person, self proclaimed. Hi, my name is Lucas, and I'm a back row person. Yeah. And the disciples, as we see continuing to look at their stories and Jesus calling them, were for the most part back row men. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, typically, in my experience in schools and in youth ministry, the kids I had in the front row were the least of my worries. My biggest problem with kids in the front row was telling them to not raise their hand for every question I asked. Right? These are the overachievers, the ones that are very zealous and they're not, they're not scared of getting caught, not paying attention because they are taking notes and they are hanging on your every word. And That was the front row. The, the, the middle of the pack, the middle of the row people... We're just your average, ordinary people, and there were some great ones in there. There were some you had to keep an eye on, but they weren't trying to create waves. They were excited to be there, and then there were the back row people, and they were strategically in the back for a number of reasons. It's, it's the hardest for the teacher to see, so if you're passing notes, if you're on your phone, if you're falling asleep, I mean, I'm, I'm as far away as I can possibly be. Or if I'm coming in late or I'm planning to sneak out early, it's the least obvious. If I'm in the front row, everybody's going to see me get up. But there are other times that being in the back was strategic because you were the least likely to get called on. If he needed a volunteer, if he was looking for a hand raised, or if he was just going to call somebody out and see if they knew the answer, you're like, I want to be in the back and I want to be behind the biggest kid and I want to be able to just shrink and disappear. Now no shame to anybody in the back row today. But what we <laughs> But what we see here with the disciples is that these were not front row men. These were not the men that were known for being the most accomplished and the most zealous and getting the most done and the teacher's pet or every rabbi wanted them. They were the ones that were overlooked. You wouldn't find them in the yearbook as the most likely to be president, most likely to change the world. These were possibly the class clowns, the overlooked ones, the bench warmers, the ones last to get chosen in dodgeball. In fact, 1 Corinthians gives us the criteria which God uses in choosing his disciples and choosing those even today that he will use for his plan. 1 Corinthians one twenty six through twenty nine says this: For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Did you see the qualities it describes of the people God is choosing to use? Foolish, weak, base, or insignificant, Despised, things that are not. Translation God has chosen the nobodies, the high school dropouts, the least likely to succeed, the people we would never choose, that He might be the clear power behind what is accomplished, that He might be the obvious wisdom providing the insight for what's needed so that he might gain the glory and the praise for the outcome and the results. Now this is going to be critical for us to understand this morning what we see Jesus doing in calling Levi a tax collector to be a disciple. And the only way that makes sense is in light of what we just read in 1 Corinthians As we look at who Levi was, his profession, and what it would have meant for Jesus to be calling this man. Because as we look at our text, we see that as Jesus went out and he's still in Galilee doing ministry, that he sees a tax collector named Levi or Matthew sitting at the tax office. Levi was a Jewish tax official working in a tax office that we assume most likely was a position of customs that required taxes both on your your properties and your movements. And so when you're coming into town, there's a tax you pay. And for the things you're bringing in, there's a tax you pay. And he would be the one to to require these taxes of you. You might think of a modern-day example of when you're returning from from. A trip overseas, and you're at the airport, and they want to see your, the things you're bringing back. They're going to tax you for those things you're bringing into the country. But it wasn't nearly as nicely looked upon as that position would be. This job was despised by the Jewish people. And those who held this job were seen as the absolute worst in society. For a number of reasons. You see, a tax collector had a number to make. They had a Roman official over that tax office or that booth that gave them a number. You've got to make 1,500 denarii in taxes and what they would get as their paycheck was at whatever they made on top of that. And so what they would do is they would find all sorts of different ways to tax the people and to tax them for more things and more ways so that whatever on top of that they get is their own profit. And the Romans didn't care how much they squeezed out of the people. They just wanted to know that they were getting the amount they asked for them to get. Anything on top of that, hey, that's your business, Levi. You tax them whatever you want. As long as you give me the paycheck I'm asking for each and every month for this tax office, you can take whatever you want after that. Well, this created a culture of some pretty shady business and requiring some pretty ridiculous taxes. And to make matters worse, Levi is a Jewish man who has now aligned himself with the Romans to take advantage of his own people for his own profit and gain. This wasn't by any means a dignified job. This wasn't glorious work. This was deceptive and manipulative. This was a, was a job that no kid grew up saying, I just want to be a tax collector when I'm older. It makes me think of when I was actually in Africa visiting one of my friends. and I was, um, I was in Kenya, but we were pretty far out in the bush. And so one day we, we were taking a ride into town and I was going to actually try and get the video just so you could, you could get a mental picture of this, but I couldn't, I couldn't get, it, get it uploaded in time. But there are three of us riding on a moped, okay? So that's already a mental picture for you. It's, and this is not a large moped, okay? And so there's three of us on this moped heading down these dirt roads into town and we, we got some lunch, and one of my friends got a haircut, and there's a whole story there as well, but we don't have time for that. And on our way back, we're coming down this dirt road, and I mean, there's nothing. You see nothing but trees and bushes around you on this tiny dirt road, and as we're going on this moped three deep, we're coming up to a spot that has two trees, and we see a guy on each side of the tree, and, and as we start coming up to it, they just kind of pull this rope tighter so that it creates like a, somewhat of a blockade. Right? A clothesline if you try and go through it. So we stop. And they walk over and and they kind of give us all this ridiculous, uh, you know, kind of title they have and the reason they're out here and that they're working for the government and they need to tax us. And, and uh, our friend who's a local is on the front, and he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I ride this road every single day for my entire life. I've never been taxed before. And they're like, well, there's a new tax because you don't, you don't have the right sticker on your bike. And he's like, well, what sticker is that? Well, we don't have any of the stickers right now, but, uh, but we still need to tax you for it because you don't have it. Sorry, it's official business. Like, you need to pay. And there's this moment where we're kind of like looking at each other and kind of discussing like, what, what do we do here? You know, um, do we just pay to get out of this? My thought for a moment was looking at my friend like, I think I could probably jump off and knock the rope down. You could drive over it and then I'll just hop back on. But the thought of being chased by two men with three of us on a moped was just something I didn't want to experience. And so after a lot of discussion and debate, we finally came to an agreement on an amount of money that was like, we know we don't have to pay this, and we're, we're going to intentionally not come back this way, but we'll pay it because we just want to get by, and we don't want to be inconvenienced anymore. And the same way we were frustrated, and we were like, man, these guys are so shady. Like, go get a real job. Don't just take advantage of us and steal our money. That's exactly how people would have viewed Matthew, Levi, like really, you're, you're a Jewish man that comes from a Jewish home and, and the Romans come in and they're trying to take advantage of us and now you're going to align yourself with them and you're going to do this shady business to profit yourself and you have no loyalty to your own people. No care for our own needs. We're working hard and trying to get by and you're just taking advantage of us and stealing our money. And for Levi to work as a tax collector... It would have had a significant consequence to life outside of that tax office. To his family, he would have been a shame and a disgrace. Anybody that asks, what's your son doing now? Where's where's Levi at? This wasn't something they were proud to tell people. In fact, they probably would have tried to avoid it altogether. He would have been disqualified because he was a tax collector from ever serving as a judge or being a part of their judicial system. That's how lowly they view the reputation of a tax collector. We can't even trust his word in court. And he would have been forbidden from the temple to partake in public worship. So in summary, Levi choosing this position, having this job, he's ashamed to his family, he's untrustworthy to society, and he's not even welcome in their public place of worship. all for the sake of the good money he's making and the the high position of power he has as being aligned with the Romans. But this is the man that as Jesus is walking through Galilee, he sees him. And not only does he see him, but he's going to call him to follow him and to be a part of God's plan and bring it about God's kingdom. It gives you hope, doesn't it? That if a man like that could be seen and called by God and then used in incredible ways for the kingdom of heaven, he can use us too. No matter what kind of positions you've had, no matter what kind of reputation has followed you, no matter how society views you, No matter how ashamed your family might be of you, God sees you. In the same way that he would call Levi the tax collector to come and be a disciple, he would call you no matter what that reputation is and say, come and follow me. I see you and I desire to use you as a part of my work. And we don't get a lot of details. It seems pretty ridiculous and crazy to think that Jesus is just walking. And as they walk by this tax office, he goes, hey, Levi, follow me. And Levi just closes the books and locks the door and just walks right on over and starts following Jesus. It seems pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? But Jesus saw, a man, that every other Jew would have done everything they could to just avoid Nobody wants to look at him. Nobody wants to hang out with him. Levi didn't have a bunch of Jewish friends that were running over like, hey man, how's the tax office today? You getting that money from people? That's great, man. I'll see you later for lunch. Like, and when people are coming to him, they're angry and they're frustrated. I'm sure they have some choice words for this man that is taking their money to give to the Romans who they're so against. What about a disciple that Jesus has called that's a zealot, who has made an oath and has dedicated his life to trying to come and overthrow, even by force, the Romans? And in this moment, he sees Jesus calling one of these traitors to follow him. But Jesus looks at Levi, and he sees what nobody else sees in him. Everyone else sees a traitor, everyone else sees a lost cause, everyone else seems sees a man that's untrustworthy, unloyal, unuseful, especially for the work of this rabbi. But Jesus sees a man that he's gonna use, and when he uses him, man, people are gonna understand the power of God. Because if God can use a tax collector as a part of building his church and and ushering in his kingdom, man, who can't he use? It's one of the beautiful things about the people we see Jesus calling is that he calls them to things and he sees things in them that nobody else sees, that even they don't see in themselves. I once heard a pastor say that the people that were most successful in this area we live in during the gold rush were those who could look at the hills and didn't just see a bunch of dirt and rock, but they could look at the mountains and the hills and they could say, I see gold in those hills. Nobody else sees it. Everybody else just sees a pile of rock. But I see what people don't see. And I know what's in there. And I'm going to find it. And I'm going to pull it out. Jesus looks at some fishermen. He says, No, I see men that are going to be fishers of men. They may not even see it. And there are times they may doubt it. But I know what I can call out in them. I know that if those men are surrendered to me, man, I can use them in incredible ways. And people see a tax collector. Jesus says, No, I see a man that's going to be a disciple. I see a man that's going to follow me. I see a man I'm going to use in incredible ways. He sees what no one else can see. And maybe that's even some of the wrestle you feel within your own life. Because when you look in the mirror, you don't see much that he can use. And you don't see much hope of ever being a prophet to the kingdom of God. Thanks be to God that he sees far more than we do. And that even when we see very little that he could use, he says, just give it to me. Surrender it. And like loaves and fishes, he can break it and he can bless it and he can multiply it. And he can take the little you've got to offer and make it more than enough. Here he calls Levi with two words that's it follow me. Doesn't ask him any questions, doesn't give him a set of rules he needs to follow doesn't have a checklist to say, are you educated enough? Are you successful enough? Are you ready? Are you looking for this? He just says, follow me. But this is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you are a person who is following Jesus. Not a person who once wanted to follow Jesus. Not a person who would really like to and is open to the idea of following Jesus, but a person who is deliberately, daily following Jesus. And maybe you're saying, what does that even mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, you can't follow him if you don't know him. So first and foremost, it means knowing Jesus. And not just as this guy that once lived as the son of God who came and lived among us and lived a perfect life and died as the sacrifice for our sins on the cross and then knowing him as your personal Lord and Savior and friend. But you can't know him well if you don't know his words and his character. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to know his word. To follow Jesus means that you're a person that is deliberately reading the word of God that is absorbing this into your life, that is continuing to read it so that you might get to know the heart of God and the plans of God and how he's calling you to be a part of that. Well, you can't constantly or consistently follow someone well unless you keep an open line of communication. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, it means that you're going to be actively in prayer with him. You're going to be talking to God You're going to be listening so God can talk to you. You're going to be talking to him about your life. You're going to be talking to him about your friends' lives. You're going to be interceding on behalf of others. You're going to be asking for forgiveness for sins. You're going to be thanking him for the things he gives you. You're going to be praying by faith that he would do more. Following Jesus looks like being continually in prayer. And if you've ever tried to follow Jesus, then you know full well that you're not going to get very far if you try to follow him in your own strength. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like depending on the Holy Spirit to empower and equip you and continue to draw you towards Jesus. When he calls Levi to follow him, when you received the call of Jesus to follow him, it looked like knowing him personally as your Lord and Savior, feasting on his word as truth, spending time in prayer with him and being led and empowered by his spirit each and every day. And that's not just what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus in Levi's time, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus today. And I know we all want more detail than that. I feel that. I understand that. We want to know what that means for where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to act. But let's remember in this moment, Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And Levi doesn't know where they're going. He doesn't say, follow me too. He says, follow me. Levi didn't know how they would get there. He's not given the details to say, follow me, and we're going to get on this boat. We're going to take this ride. We're going to camp here. He doesn't know where they're going or how they're going to get there. He doesn't even know what part he plays in it. Okay, I'm working with money. Am I going to be the money guy? Am I going to, you want me to have have a relationship with the Romans? Am I somehow going to tie in? It doesn't matter. Levi, follow me. You don't need to know where we're going. You don't need to know what we're doing. You don't need to know how we're going to get there or what part you play in it. All you need to know is that I'm calling you to follow me, and you have a decision to make. Maybe you've got 20 questions you want to ask Jesus before you follow him. What exactly does this look like? How does this work? What is that going to mean for my family and my job? And and how does that play out in the future? And what? He's calling you to a decision. A decision by faith that says, there's a million things I don't know, but if I know for a fact I'm a sinner, and I know for a fact the only Savior for my sin is Jesus, and he has given me an invitation that if I, by faith, confess my sins to him and believe on him as my Lord and Savior, what he did on the cross was enough for my sins, I can be saved, and following him, I... We'll figure it out. His Holy Spirit is a great teacher and a great guide and he's going to have to lead me because I don't know what this looks like. I don't even know the next step out that door. All you need to know is that he's calling you to follow him and you have a decision to make. All Levi needed to do was obey the command of Jesus and trust that when he needed to know more, it would be told to him. Have you ever struggled with commands of Jesus in Scripture, things that are really easy to read and yet feel impossible to apply? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and you're like, okay, I get it. But when I'm in the midst of a trial, that feels like a pretty difficult command to follow. Go into all the world and make disciples. You're like, okay, it's not hard to understand what you're asking me to do, but but practically what does that look like and how do I accomplish that? And you just need to follow Jesus. You need to obey his commands. Don't wait until you feel like you've got the perfect plan and you've got the 20 steps and you know exactly every point of what you're going to be doing. We would like that, but do you know what that would do? That would remove the need for faith. God, will you just lay out the full plan for me so I know, and then we would no longer look to him for direction. We would no longer need his wisdom. We would no longer need an answer. We would no longer depend on him in a moment that we feel like, I don't know what to do. I love the moment that people are walking away from Jesus. I don't love it for that, okay? But, but I love this moment that Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, are you gonna leave as well? And, and what does Peter say? He says, <laughs> You have the words of eternal life. Where else can I go? In a moment, he's following Jesus, and he says, well, yeah, they're leaving, and this is difficult, and I don't even really understand what you're saying, but if you have the words of eternal life, where else can I go? Peter didn't understand where this was going to take them. There were times he wrestled with the things Jesus said were coming. But he just knew that you're, you're the Savior, You are the Christ, you're the Son of God. So if I know that, we'll figure it out. And it's going to feel messy at times and difficult and confusing. But there's nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. Levi, you need to follow me. If I doesn't know what that means or what that's going to look like. Think about how powerful that moment would have just been for him to feel like, there's a rabbi that sees me. There's a rabbi that knows my name. There's a rabbi that's willing to acknowledge me and is even not ashamed to have me follow him. My own people, his own family would have been ashamed of him. But this rabbi that's coming along that's saving people and there has this massive following with him, He wants me. I don't need to know anything else. If you're not ashamed to call me a follower of you, man, I'm in. I wish we could hear the stories even probably in this room today of people who said, the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call me a follower of him, that was enough. That was enough for me. The fact today that Jesus is still not ashamed to call us followers of him, man, it's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his love. And Levi responds, says he left all, he rose up, and he followed him. He leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Jesus. And maybe for some here today, when you came to Christ, it required the very same thing of you. Not just surrendering your life, not just giving up your future and your plans, but giving up all that you have made and accomplished up to that point. And some might say, well, can I keep my old job? Do I really have to give up everything to follow Christ? Well, in some cases, absolutely. Jesus is going to call you to to keep those things and to use them and redeem them for His glory. We see that at times in Scripture. But if your last job was robbing people, if your last job was being a drug dealer, no, you can't bring that in with Jesus. You need to leave all of it behind. None of that can have any place. Levi, I'm not calling you to be a redeemed tax collector that still... Steals money from your people. I'm calling you to leave all that and follow me. You know, some people just want to throw Jesus into their old way of living. Everything you're telling me about Jesus sounds really good, and I want that, but I don't want to give up all this that I've accomplished, that I've worked for. So can I just kind of mix the two together and have this little hybrid Christianity that feels like I get the best of both worlds? It's not an option. You're called to deny yourself. You're called to, to take up your cross and follow Jesus because whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. Surely you don't think that you can bring Jesus into an adulterous relationship. He's calling you to leave that way of living behind. Now does he extends grace For those that are found in such a place, yes, a woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you. But what does he tell her then? Go and sin no more. I see you and I love you and I'm not condemning you. I'm inviting you into a relationship with me. But I'm also calling you to walk away from that old way of living. Those old things, they've passed away. I'm calling you to a new life. You're a new creation where old things have passed away. And all things are new. You don't bring Jesus into your new age beliefs or your substance abuse. In following him, you walk away from all of that. Because you're not the leader in this relationship. You're the follower. You're not the rabbi. You're the disciple. Jesus is calling Levi to follow him. And Levi's leaving behind a lot. He would have been a wealthy man with lots of power, being in favor with the Romans. And yet in this moment, when Jesus, the rabbi, is calling him to follow, there's, there's nothing in the world that could compare with that. Reminds me of, of Paul in, in Philippians 3 when he's giving this whole pedigree of everything that he had accomplished in his life. Pharisee of Pharisees. He's from the right tribe. He's circumcised the eighth day. He was more zealous than any other So accomplished, so powerful, so successful as a Pharisee. And yet he says, All of that I counted as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. I won't go into all the graphic detail of that word rubbish, but it's not a pretty sight. And he says, Everything else, when you stack it up against Jesus, there is no comparison whatever you might be wrestling with that Jesus is calling you to give up, to follow him, no matter how much you're convinced it's worth, Jesus is more, far more. And if you're wrestling today to believe that, take the step of faith, leave it behind and follow Jesus. And I promise you, he's more than enough. To meet all of your needs in him. It says that Levi rose up. He stood up in that place. To follow Jesus requires that we get up. That we rise up off the couch. That we rise up off the TV. Off the computer. Off of the phone. Off of our own personal soapbox. We get off of all of that. We rise up. To the standard Jesus has called us to live, which is a higher standard than the world. And there are things that might be lawful for you, but they're not profitable. And He's calling you to rise up out of that. Some of us so desperately want to follow Christ, but we're unwilling to rise up. So committed to the God of comfort and ease that were unwilling to get up. And maybe for others here, you were intentional to rise up and to follow Jesus, but you fell back into sin, you got knocked down, and now you're allowing yourself to remain in that defeated place. Proverbs 24, 16 says that a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked fall by calamity. Maybe you fell down. Maybe today you're finding yourself in a place that you've never really risen up. And rise up. Wake up out of the sleep. Stand up to God's standard of living. Stand up for the truth and don't settle for any compromise. Levi rose up. Out of his position of his own power, out of his position of his own wealth he had made for himself, out of the safety he had with the Romans backing him, and he rose up out of all of that to a better way in Jesus. He left all, he rose up, and now he's following Jesus. And what does he do as his first act as a follower of Jesus? We read that Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The very next step for Levi in following Jesus was to get into community. I'll be very black and white with you this morning. If you're not in a home group, you're missing out. And I don't say that to appeal to your FOMO so that you go, well, I don't want to miss out on what's going on. I, got... I say that sincerely. The church is meant to be more than a gathering on Sunday mornings. That's not how it started. That's not how it's going to continue. To truly be The church, the people of God that are a body, that are connected together, you've got to get together more than on a Sunday morning where you sit down next to each other and you listen to a study and then you walk out the door and go do your own life separate from everyone else. It needs to be people who open up our homes and share meals together and spend time in the presence of Jesus together, who can cry on each other's shoulders, who can wrestle through doubts together together who can confess our sins to one another that we may be healed and pray for one another in times of difficulty. It's being willing to let people see dishes in your sink, dirty laundry on the couch, kids that have a meltdown, bringing people into the fights and difficulties you're having in your marriage. It doesn't look like trying to figure all that out on your own and then show up on Sunday and act like you've got it all together. Levi has been a man that has been on the outside of society and community as long as he's been a tax collector. But the moment he comes to Jesus, he is opening up his home and he's throwing a meal and he's bringing everybody. If you want to be a part of a living, thriving church community here and you feel like, I'm not really connected, I don't feel like I really belong, the very first question I'm going to ask you is, Are you in a home group? Because that's where you're going to find community. That's where you're going to feel like you belong. That's where you're going to be able to use your gifts and get to know people better than just a first name and a job. And they're going to get to know you and your struggles and the difficulties you're facing. And they're going to text you throughout the week. And I promise you right now, if you're expecting me to be the person to text every one of you this week, I'm going to forget. And I don't have 90% of your numbers. And I'm going to fail you. And people in a home group will fail you as well, but they're people that are going to be with you day in and day out. People that you can call when you're snowed in and they're going to come over and help you shovel it out. People that can help watch your kids when you've got something you need to run to real quick. I've been so blessed by the home group I've been a part of here. The people that have come over to help with projects, the people I've been able to go over and help with their projects, see kids born in our home group, Have dinners together, do meals together, times of worship and prayer. It's the way the church community was meant to be. And you need to be a part of one. But secondly, we see this as more than just a home group that Levi is starting in his home. There's tax collectors and Pharisees and scribes here. There's people that don't know Jesus yet here. Do you know what I love is that he may not have had a big community, but He's grabbing the other tax collectors. I may not have had many people I could call on, but he knows, well, the other tax collectors, they don't look down on me. And I wanna bring them all, because this thing I found in Jesus, I want them to experience it as well. Isn't that the right response of a believer? And I want other people to know what I found. And so I'm grabbing my friends that I was doing other things with before that I'm not gonna be doing anymore, and I want them to know what changed. And so he brings them to Jesus. This man is opening up his home to share Jesus and what Jesus has done to those who are yet to follow him. And I can't think of a better way to reach your neighbors, to reach the community around us, than inviting them into your home for a meal. Now, I can't tell you the number of times I'd invited someone to church and they've rejected it and they've said no and they've had a list of reasons why they're not going to come through those doors and they're not going to come in here do you know i've yet to have is the person who rejects coming to my house for a meal that's an easy sell i say come to church and they're like well there's a lot of baggage there i don't know your church i don't i don't think i want to go but when i get to know someone and i've built a relationship with them and i say hey why don't you guys come over for a meal sure (laughs) yeah we'll come over to your house And I love here that Levi is opening up his home because he's a man whose life has been dedicated by taking things from other people, using the Romans and their power to his advantage and, and taking money from his own people to profit himself. He's known for taking from others for his own benefit, and the moment he comes to Jesus, it flips, and now he's giving away what he has for the benefit of others. This is the kind of transformation that takes place when you give your life to Jesus. Once selfish people that were looking out for our own good, now a selfless people that want to see others come and find the hope in Jesus. You know, Christians should be the most generous people in the world. People that look at everything they have, their money, their resources, their talents, their energy, All of it in just open hands. God, you gave me all of this. So use it for your glory. And if he can take a tax collector, make him a home group leader, he can take us no matter how selfish we've been before, no matter how much we've been so focused on a number we want to get in our bank account, or the perfect home we want to have one day, or the retirement we're looking forward to, or the the car we've always wanted to drive, or the fill in the blank with the thing. And what if we were to instead say, Lord, it's not about me. If the car gets me from A to B, praise the Lord, it's enough. If the home keeps me dry and warm, praise God, it's enough. If I have enough money to eat and pay my rent, praise God, it's enough. And Lord, everything else, Lord, Use it. I want to give it away. I want to bless others. I'm not living for these things. And this isn't my home. I'm seeking a homeland that is to come. So Lord, take it away and use it to reach more people, to bless more people. Because you want to know the one disciple that didn't have that mindset? The one disciple that struggled with how generous people were It was Judas, the one that would see someone break a jar and pour out costly oil on Jesus' feet and say, what are you doing? That's costly, it's expensive. What a waste. Nothing's wasted when it's poured out for God. And also there's no gift too small that God is not still pleased with it. Maybe you look at everything you have and you're like, that's great and I wish I I could be so generous with what I have. I don't have much to give. Even if it's a widow's mite, you giving what you have to Jesus is enough. Not a person in this room has too little that they can't still offer what they have to Jesus and not a person in this room has so much Jesus is still asking you to be generous with what you have and give it to his kingdom because it's never going to satisfy you. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the same people last week that couldn't celebrate what Jesus was doing because of the faith of a lame man and his friends that would lower him in that room, just wanted to complain because he's trying to forgive sins are the same people in this moment that can't celebrate the transformation that's taken place in the life of Levi. And instead, they want to complain to the disciples, what is he doing eating with these people? What is he doing going in their home and drinking with them? He doesn't belong there. This is a rabbi. This is an influential rabbi that has a following. He should only be eating with the most elite people. He should only be seen in the most prestigious places. What is he doing going to the house of a tax collector and eating with sinners? And there's two things I think that are worth mentioning here. With this holdup they have and with Jesus' response. Because he looks and he says, these are the very people I came for. I didn't come for the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. I came for the lost. These are the people I came to save. But the first thing worth noting is the audience. In all of Jesus' earthly ministry, you'll continue to see him going to places that were commonly unvisited and unwanted. These weren't highly visited tourist locations where everybody wanted to go and see the sights. Jesus is going where everybody else avoids, and he's going to the people everyone else ignores. But when we see Jesus himself describe who he came for, we realize it's a much broader group than just the few outcasts in each city or society. He says he came for sinners. That's everyone. And yet he makes a note to say he did not come for the righteous, which is really interesting because... Paul would tell you in Romans 3, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, listen to this, There is none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside and they all have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no not one. The reality is that everyone qualifies as a sinner, and nobody qualifies as being righteous apart from Jesus. And so when he comes in that room and he says, I have come for the sinners, that's everyone. I haven't come for the righteous, that's nobody. Nobody is truly righteous apart from Jesus. So then who will salvation come to? Does that mean everyone will be saved No. That means those who recognize they do not possess righteousness within themselves on their own and humbly confess, I'm a part of that sinner camp, Lord. He said you came for the sinners. I'll step over there with that group because that's who I am. And those are the people he came to save. He's got Pharisees in the room that are unwilling to put themselves in the camp with the sinners, They're questioning, why is he coming to eat and drink with sinners? Well, you're here too, buddy. And actually, if he came to eat at your house, he'd be doing the very same thing. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. Are they truly righteous before God? No, but in their own eyes, they are. And because in their own eyes, they are right with God, they don't recognize their need for him to save them. The Pharisees are missing Jesus because they don't think they need him. They're missing the rabbi that was prophesied of to come because he doesn't look how they expected. He's not acting how they would have anticipated it. I don't know about you, but I find such peace in those words of Jesus that he came to call sinners to repentance, that he came for me. And if you look at that text and you say, well, that's great, he came for those people, but what about me? There's your problem, is that you don't realize you're a part of those people. This is a church filled with sinners that celebrate that Jesus came to save us. And this is a church filled with the righteous because our righteousness is in Christ Jesus simultaneously both a sinner and righteous because of the work of Jesus. But one more note about Jesus saying that he came for the sinners. He's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors because there's a group of people that will misuse this text and will defend use it to defend a stance that I believe is unbiblical and is unsafe. A position that says Jesus spent all of his time with the sinners, with the prostitutes, with the tax collectors, with the lepers. So I'm going to do the same. Those are who he hung out with. Those are who he spent his time with. Now Jesus didn't turn away from them. And it's true. Jesus had his meals with them. He loved them. He deeply desired to save them. He never turned aside from them. But Jesus spent the vast majority of his time with his disciples and with his father. And every one of us should have people that are lost that we are going to with a heart to see the truth brought to them and salvation come to them. But you should also have that community of believers around you like we talked about that are going to sharpen you, that are going to hold you accountable, that are going to point you to Jesus when you're getting off track. And when I see Christians who are spending the vast majority of their time with non-believers spending the majority of their time in non-Christian arenas, I'm just as concerned as I would be for the Christian that's dating or marrying the non-Christian. Because far too often, the one I see changing in that group is not everybody else, it's the Christian who spends the majority of their time not around believers that point their eyes to Jesus, but around people that are lost, that are turning their eyes from Jesus. And the Christian is compromising their integrity, maybe living with open sin because the people around them aren't going to call them out on it and are slowly relating less with the church and more with the world. People who are willing to jump in with a group of non-Christians and bash the church and talk about how all the things that Christians are doing wrong and the hurt that they're causing... And they're doing so justifying it because Jesus spent his time with meals, with the sinners and the tax collectors. He was reaching out to the prostitutes and the lepers, and it's true, he was. But he was calling them to repentance. And it's not an intentional mission that brings the gospel and seeks to bring light and change in those arenas, but far too often it's watered down, trying to relate more with the world than we should. Doesn't really bring up the conversations we should. Allows sin to continue to thrive around us. Is more concerned with offending someone with the gospel than we are with seeing that person continue to walk in bondage to sin, headed towards hell an offense to God. Go into the world. Reach the lost. Love the broken. But love them enough to call them to repentance and faith in Jesus. You see, God loved you just the way you were when he called you. Just like he loved Levi this day in a tax office when no one else did. He loved him just the way he was that day, but he loved him too much to leave him that way. And so he called him to leave all that behind and to follow Jesus. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what brought you to this point right now. But Jesus loves you just the way you are today, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And that's true for the person that hasn't given their life to Jesus yet and that's true for the person that's followed Jesus for 50 years. He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And he's calling you into community with people that are going to sharpen you as iron sharpens iron and are going to push you to follow Jesus even when you don't want to. That are going to call out your sin when you can't even see it and are going to remind you of scriptures you've forgotten that are gonna give you truth in times of doubt and hope in times of despair, don't expect to receive that from the world. And here, I love the response of Levi to bring these people into his home and Jesus is not ashamed to sit in that room and sit at that table with them and have a meal with them, but he's on a mission And he has a purpose in doing so, and it's to call these people to repentance. It's to call them to the same thing he called Levi to, to leave all that, to rise up and to follow him. Now, as I invite the worship team to come back up, we're going to be taking communion together in a moment after the song. And so if you haven't gotten the element, you can get those out in the lobby But before we do that, I want to take a moment this morning to give you an opportunity. Because Scripture is clear about a couple things. And one of those, well, it's clear about a lot of things. But a couple things pertaining to what we're talking about this morning, which is communion is for believers. This is only for believers. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you've got two options. Either give your life to Jesus today and partake in this with the family of God or abstain from taking in this because this is something we do as people that follow Jesus because Jesus himself has told us to do it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. We take this more, more than just a tradition that we do in church. We do this to remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us as he died on a cross for our sins and the blood of Jesus that washes away the sins of the world because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So we do this as believers to remember what Jesus did to bring salvation to us because that call that he has to follow him only leads us to salvation because of where he went, which was the cross. And so we're going to take this together after a song of worship. But before we do that, I want to give you the same invitation that we read today, which is for you to follow Jesus. That's the simplest way to describe what it is to give your life to Christ. It's doing exactly what Levi did. It's leaving behind your own life, leaving behind your old way of thinking. It's leaving behind the the sins of this world, the cares of this world, the life you once lived and is following Jesus. And maybe you've got a lot of questions. We welcome every one of them and we'll answer the ones we can. But right now, you don't need all those answered to make a decision this morning. All you need to know is who you are and who Jesus is. And I won't sugarcoat it for you. You are a no good, filthy sinner. Welcome home. We all are. And you have no hope in and of yourself to work your way to heaven. It doesn't matter how good you've been. doesn't matter how good your family's been. doesn't matter what you do. There is no hope and no salvation apart from Jesus. So the good news I have to give you today is not found in yourself. The good news is That, although you are a sinner that has no hope of salvation on your own strength, there's a solution to that problem. There's a new covenant that you can be under. In fact, Jesus told the disciples about this in Luke 22. When it says that he, when he knew his hour had come, sat down with the twelve apostles, and with them he said, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The solution for your sin. The solution to Death and the grave, we've already sung about it. It is Jesus and his body broken, his blood shed, not for them, for you. For you here today who recognize that you are a sinner who needs saving, who is willing to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and then Paul says, You'll be saved. doesn't need any more information than that. This is who you are, and this is who Jesus is. You're a person who is lost in sin. Jesus is the hope of salvation. You're a person who is under the power of darkness, but he comes to transfer you into the kingdom of the son of his love. your person who had no hope who now can have a living hope in Jesus and how was all this accomplished because he died for your sins and he made a way of salvation and so before we have a song before I then come back up and we take of communion together and remember what God has done i need to ask you this morning to make a decision there are no maybes you either accept him or you reject him. You either follow Jesus or you are turning away from him. And this morning, as, as an act to display that decision you're making in your heart, I'm going to ask that you would raise your hand if you're feeling so bold that you would stand up or you could even come to the front, but that you would clearly, before the body of Christ, make that decision today that you want to give your life to Jesus. We'll iron out the details. We'll work through the wrinkles. We will figure all that out. Right now, all you need to know is who you are and who he is. And he's asking you this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart. He's saying, follow me. This is the day of salvation. Don't, don't neglect the work he might be doing. Is there anyone this morning that needs to raise their hand? needs to make that decision and give their life to Jesus. close with a song of worship during this song of worship before we take communion together there's going to be people available that would love to pray with you and maybe you've never made that decision but you need to make that decision and come up and let someone pray with you this morning maybe you've made that decision and you've fallen and you need to rise up again God's tugging at your heart because this morning you need to come and you need to get prayer. You need to rise up and follow him again today.